0: So we've been in this series called Everyday Mystic. Uh, anyone have an opportunity to spend some time in meditation and prayer this last week? Raise your hand. A lot. That's good. Really good. Um, we're in a series where we're talking about mysticism, Christian mysticism, where uh, we're using this concept. And what we mean when we use this concept is we actually want to give some, like, definition, some some defining terms around what it looks like to cultivate intimacy with God. This whole year we've been talking about—it's uh, like our pastoral uh, theme this year—is cultivating intimacy with God, and this series is a an attempt at drilling down on some concepts on what this really means. And the reason why we're using mysticism to do this is that we've been saying mysticism is the art of union with God. If you're the artistic type of person that you like the practice of something and never perfecting it and you're moving toward it and you have different expressions, mysticism is the art of union with God. Or, said differently, if you're more goal-oriented, mysticism is the pursuit of or the enjoyment of union with God. See, union with God is what Jesus was really on about when he was on earth teaching. Union with God is an indicative in the New Testament. That is, it's a reality, it's a fact, it's true about you. If you are in Christ, you are in union with God. But mysticism is the art of practicing that reality. Mysticism is the art of enjoying that reality, the art of pursuing that reality. It is true that if you're in Christ, you are one with God, but what mysticism's aim is, is that you would enjoy that union, that you would actually experience that union. You would experience that union every day, and that takes cultivation. Experiencing union with God takes cultivation. And so what we've been trying to do is give you some very practical ways on becoming an everyday mystic. So we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about the sacred reading of Scripture, or, we've call, or it's been historically called Lectio Divina, which I think is like the number one way. If, you're, if you are, need a, 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 like an a on-ramp on mysticism, start with Lectio Divina. And we talked about that the last two weeks. We talked about meditation. We've talked about forms of prayer, including the examine. We've talked about the importance of silence. And today I want to go into the life of a mystic. What the interior life of an everyday mystic looks like. And what mystics experience. That's why I'm calling this sermon Into the Mystic. Of course, Uh, shout out to Van Morrison on that. To do all of that, I want to start with a meditation on John 15, 1-17. And I think I've read or reference this section, the entire series so far. You can probably say this series is an extrapolation of John 15, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read it again. And I want to let this text, these words of Jesus, wash over us. Let the Spirit speak to us through it. And then I'll talk about a few things I hope are inspired. We'll see. Um, so let's do this for a second. Let's just get comfortable in your chair. It's usually helpful to put both your feet on the ground uh, when, you, when you begin to be silent. And the reason why you want to put both feet on the ground is that if you have your legs crossed or whatever, it cuts off circulation. That's just simply why. It's not anything like super, super like mystical. Just like your leg will fall asleep and you're like, man, my, my leg's asleep. It's a bummer. So you should probably put them both on the ground. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let us sit silent for a few moments. I want you to breathe, like intentionally breathe, because breathing gets oxygen to your brain. Just very simple stuff, guys, okay? If you're a Christian, during silence in a second, I want you to say this. Come Holy Spirit. Speak, I'm listening. If you're not a Christian in here, and if you can say this genuinely, say God, I'm opening, I'm open to hearing from you. Just say, God, I'm open to hearing from you. So let's be silent for a couple seconds. And then as we do this, I want to lead you through this, this section. With your eyes closed and silent, I'm about to read the words of Jesus. And I want you to notice which words or phrases or portions of this stick out to you. Cause you to remember something or want something or stir your affections in any way. I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. This is my command, love each other. So Lord, whatever stood out today in this passage of your word, would you lean into that and speak to us? May something in this sermon or something that happens in this room speak directly to something that you have flagged or brought to our attention in this reading. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. I love, I love John 15. I've spent a lot of time meditating through John 15. I think it's one of the most mystical and practical teachings Jesus ever gave us. And what's better than all of that is that he used metaphor to talk about this, vine and branches. We are the branches. He is the vine. We have to stay in him. Because in metaphor is how we actually learn reality. And his hope is that this simple metaphor would shape our reality, that what he's teaching us in John 15 would shape our reality because what he's saying, what Jesus is saying here, is true reality. And we learn reality in order to navigate life better, just like knowing one plus one equals two. That's reality. And knowing that simple reality can help you navigate life a lot better. It can help you deal with your money and choosing things at the store, even doing things like coding, like the simple building blocks. Like, that's reality. One plus one equals two, that's reality. And it helps you to build on that reality because that's reality. And in the same way, what Jesus is saying, this is reality. That Jesus is the vine and that you are the branch and you must remain in him and to and to truly do anything in this life, anything in this life, you have to stay in Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that's true, that's reality. Like one plus one equals two. I'm the vine; you're the branches. Stay in me, and you, and, and apart from me, you could do nothing. That is reality. And if you believe that, like believing one plus one equals two, you will navigate life better. You can actually build on that. And here's what this means: On one hand, that's mystically beautiful and mind blowing. Oh my gosh. I remain in Jesus and he remains in me, his life, flo- his life flows into me and I can do something with my life. And not just that, that I can ask him things and for things and they, these things start to happen in my life. He's the source, the true vine. Like that's, that's reality. Now the challenge to that is this. What's challenging about this idea is that you, you know you don't have you and I, we don't have inner light. The light in you doesn't honor the light in me. We don't find ourselves by looking within. This is what you grew up learning. We don't know who we are by going inward and inward into ourselves to find what's ultimately in there that's true. That's not reality. If you do that, eventually you will die. You will do that enough to where you don't ever, ever, you will never, ever, ever find out who you are. You will continue to be in this fluidity where there is no grounding at all. Life, light, and love happen from outside of us, and they're a gift that we receive. They happen from being connected to something outside of that, that being the true source, the vine, that is Jesus. Now, I'll try to spend the rest of my sermon explaining why I think that's true. If you don't agree with me now, just keep listening. And if we're not connected to that vine, we have no life. This is what Jesus is saying. We have no true vitality, and we are not awakened toward the world and toward eternity. I think that's the challenge of this metaphor, that apart from me, you could do nothing, but the mystical beauty of this metaphor is that if we are connected to jesus if we remain in him and his words remain in us we have god himself father son and spirit living in us and we are brought into a divine dance with god and we are brought into the life of god fellowship with god oneness with god we are actually brought into ultimate reality At the center, at the core of the universe, there is an ultimate reality, and it is this. Father, Son, Spirit, Trinity, three in one. God himself living in perfect union with himself needed nothing, but out of his love created humanity to share in that union, to share in that relationship, which is why every single one of us is a relational being. At our core, we're relational. Why? Because God's relational. That is ultimate reality. That's insane. The fact that through Christ, we're brought into that ultimate reality, and that lives in us. We are brought into the divine. If you do not think that Christianity is mystic at all, you have not read the teachings of Jesus. That is insanely mystical, that you and I are brought into union with God, and through Jesus, we are brought into this mystical and very organic union with God, a life with God that is so seamless, it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins, like vines and branches, a life that is so organic that the byproduct of this kind of life is fruitfulness, bore for the life of the world. Jesus saying, stay connected to me and you become fruitful. Now, Paul the apostle would go on to expound on what Jesus means here in Galatians 5. He says, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit that we, that we, that we, that we bore, bear, bear is that, is that right? Okay, good, thank you. The fruit that we come up with, <laughs> 90% of preaching is finding other ways to say words you can't think of. Um, what, we, what we bear into the life of the world, Paul says in Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, you can't make those things up. You can't love by going, oh, I'm going to be more loving today. This doesn't work that way. You can't go, oh, I'm going to be more joyful. You can't do that. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go for happiness. And it just never works out that way. It only happens as a byproduct of staying connected to Jesus. But how does that happen? Look at verse 4 again in the message. This is John, uh, John chapter 15, verse 4 in the message Bible, which is Eugene Peterson's uh, translation that he wrote for his, ch- his congregation to, to, to help his congregation understand the Bible. He wrote their, his own translation for them. I'm still working on mine, guys. Okay, just give me some time. (laughs) This is what it is. He says, live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined into the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. Look at that. Keep that up on the screen. Live in me. Make your home in me. See, fruit is a byproduct of that. You don't make fruit. Fruit is the organic result of a branch just staying connected. Just staying connected. By you staying connected to to Jesus, your life becomes more loving. You can't drum this up. By staying connected to Jesus, you become more joyful. That is not dependent on your circumstances. Being connected to Jesus, you become more at peace. you, but listen, you're not responsible for the fruit. God's responsible for the fruit. But to, to say that John 15 means you don't have responsibility is a lie. Look at your responsibility. You are responsible for living in God and making your home in God. Right? He's responsible for the fruit. You're responsible to remain. Or you're responsible to live in or make your home in God, NIV says to remain in him. And what Jesus is saying here is that you have both the ability and the responsibility to live in God. You have both, first of all, church, you have both the ability, meaning you can do it, you can live in God, if you don't think you can, you can, and you have the responsibility, you must live in God. You can live in God and you must make your home in God. And what that looks like for the life of a mystic what that looks like for a life of an everyday mystic is what i think the spanish mystic john of the cross says john of the cross put the spiritual life like this and this is obviously a transliteration being that he wrote in spanish he said this the spiritual life is about making space for god in our lives a space for god to fill because his greatest desire is to give himself completely to us. Keep that on the screen. Maybe take a picture of that. I'll smile. <laughs> now, this is so important, guys and gals. The spiritual life is about making... Sp- I think this is actually po- poetic if you break it down like this if you're taking notes. Making space in our lives, space for God to fill, because God wants to give himself to us. Making space in our lives, space for God to fill... Because God wants to give himself to us. That is the essence of the spiritual life. That is the essence of a life of a mystic, of an everyday mystic. I want to make space for God in my life. And I want this space to be filled with God. I want to make space for God and for God to fill this space with himself. Because God wants to give himself completely to me. Completely. And so, making space for God. This means physically making space for God. Like physically, as in time and space for God. And this means consciously, like everyday awareness. That's the hope anyways. The everyday awareness. And this is how the life of God gets into the interior life of a mystic. This is how the life of God gets deep down into our lives. As we live in union with God every day, we have to both physically, time and space, make time for God, and and space for God. And we have to consciously, meaning an everyday awareness of that. Which leads to the the summation, the telos, the goal of mysticism, which is contemplation. The contemplative life where God lives in our awareness all the time is the goal. Now, I can't speak, honestly, to be just dead honest, I can't speak too much to the contemplative life because I'm not there yet. When I'm there, when I'm hopefully 80, I will do a great sermon on this. Not there yet. I can talk about the principles of it, but it's just, I'm not there. But I do want to say a few things about making space for God. Because I am there now. And I have been there. What does it look like to make space for God, a space for God to fill, because he wants to give himself completely to us? What does that look like? Well, we've been talking about um, over this last series that our hope in our church, Reality San Francisco, if you're a part of our church, our hope is that you would choose to spend 30 minutes, five days a week, in silent, meditative prayer and relationship with God. Thirty minutes. Now it might start with five five minutes. It might start with two, it might start with two minutes. It might start with two minutes three times a week. Great. Stay on that track. Um, and then it might grow to five minutes. Ten, our hope is thirty minutes five days a week. Because I think there needs to be some some grace there. We build in grace here at the church, right? Build in the grace there five days a week. That's our That's that's what I'm hoping that we're all trying to creatively move toward. But let me speak to something. Let me speak to a few things around what I've been hearing over the last several, actually the last several uh, last year especially, um, talking about cultivating intimacy with God. Um, Ronald Rollheiser, in his very short book on prayer, tells a story of a friend, who has, who uh, one of his friends who's um, who's faithful in church attendance. Uh, try to live an honest and a moral life. But he finds himself, his friend finds himself in his mid-40s being plagued by doubts about God and he's unable to pray. And he went to see a spiritual director. A spiritual director is someone who's trained in helping you get through rough patches in your spirituality to talk about how your prayer life's going, talk about how you're, to find, to, how, how you're finding God in circumstances in your life, how God's conspiring against, in your life to show himself to you. He went to see a spiritual director and received what sounded like a very simplistic piece of advice that actually made him mad. His spiritual director said to him, make a promise to yourself to sit in silent prayer for a half an hour a day for the next six months. If you are faithful to that, you will recover your sense of God. His friend protested. His friend said, "That's so. there's no way in the world I'm doing that. The spiritual director persisted. Just do it. Show up. And sit in silent prayer, even if you feel like you are talking to a wall. It's the only practical advice I can give you. Be gone, or whatever. You know, good night. (laughs) So, Rohiger said his friend did it. He said, after six months, his sense of God had indeed returned. And then, Rohiger says this Our sense of God's existence, his presence, is very much linked to fidelity to prayer. However, and this is a catch-22, we struggle to sustain long-term real prayer in our lives. I, I love how true, when you read spiritual writers, most of them are very honest around the struggle to develop the interior life with God. The struggle to, to, to get to the place where you, you, you have consistent times with God. They, they talk about it all the time. And Roheiser here, I love this, true to his, the way he writes, why I love the way he writes. He says, this is a catch-22. They're actually, like, you need regular disciplined prayer, time and prayer with God to sustain that, that life where you feel like God's close to you. And at the same time, it's a catch-22, you struggle to sustain long-term real prayer. The only way that you really feel close to God is through disciplined long-term prayer. And the biggest struggle is disciplined long-term prayer. And then right after that, he says something that, I read over, I don't know, a while ago, and I've just been dying to share it with you, but I've just held off to right now. I attest to this 100%, and this might really minister to you. And if you feel like making this kind of space for God is so hard, you might, you might really resonate with this. If not, just chalk it up to, maybe this might happen to me one day, maybe. But for a lot of us that struggle in prayer, this, I hope this really speaks to you. He says this. Prayer is e- easy only for beginners and for those who are already saints. <laughs> that is so helpful. <laughs> During all the long years in between, it is difficult. Why? Because prayer has the same inner dynamics as love. And love is sweet only in its initial stage, when we first fall in love... And in its final, mature stage, in between love is hard work, dog fidelity, and needs willful commitment beyond what is normally provided by our emotions and our imagination. Why isn't anyone saying this? Why hasn't anyone told you this? I don't know. I'll talk to your pastor. No, why hasn't? This is so important. So... Some of you guys, romantics, are like, oh, I can't believe you put that on the screen. What are you talking about? Like, I'm in love all the time. Everywhere I go, oh, my gosh, just love, 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 love. I love. Okay? And, and it's hard to be around you all the time, to be honest. But for, 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 for the rest of the world, because that it does happen. There are people that fall in love with God, and it's like this, like, ecstasy all the time with God. And it's not work; it's just so easy. And then they fall in love with someone. It's the same thing in their in their marriage. Very, very, very rare. For most everyone else, you need to hear this. Prayer has the same inner dynamics in love. When you fall in love, there is something where you you like forget to eat, you forget to think, you forget to do. You just fall into love, and it's amazing. And then what happens is there's this cooling off period. And if you, and this this is true of love, and then when you get married, the thing happens again where you're like, first, I don't know, could be month, it could be year. You're just like, everything's new, it's amazing, and then it gets really hard. And this is where people think that, did I make a mistake? Did I marry the wrong person? By the way, everyone marries the wrong person. (laughs) Can we just get that out of the way? It's not even a marriage talk. That's next year. We're doing one, but everyone does. But love, love is, and again, I hope this doesn't discourage anyone. If you find that you are an exception to the world, this is great. For everyone else, listen to this. <laughs> Prayer and intimacy with God and mysticism, whatever you want to call it, has the same inner dynamics of love because it is love. Prayer is love. And love is at the center of the John 15 passage. He says, remain in me. And Jesus says, by, by loving. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. At the very center of abiding in Christ is love. Remaining in Jesus means remaining in his love. And listen, young young church, listen. Love requires duty. Love starts to take on the same form as duty after the initial butterflies of love wear off. You need to know this, both about human love and loving God. It starts to feel like duty. Duty. When you're married, for a certain amount of time, it starts to feel like, I have to do this. It feels like washing dishes. It feels like going to get something for your wife when you have just settled in on the couch. (laughs) It feels like saying no to something you wanted to do because of something you have to do. Love feels like that. And I know, I'm sorry in this consumeristic, sexual revolution, the American promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has ruined the, this concept for you. But love is a virtue and not simply an emotion. It's more of a virtue than it is an emotion. And virtues have to be developed in your interior life through discipline. This is why marriage is a discipline. This is why you, you stand before um, the court or you stand before a priest or you stand before a pastor and you make vows... That I will do this discipline whether I'm sick or I'm healthy. Whether I'm rich or poor. All, all, all the vows. I will do this no matter how I feel. because I ha- this And this is going to develop in me. Prayer and the mystical life feel that way. It feels like effort. It feels like work. That doesn't mean it's not working. It just means it's work to shape you like working out shapes your muscles. Now What if you don't have time? What if you just honestly don't have the time to commit to this duty of love because of another duty of love has all your energy? For example, having young kids. Moms and dads of young children have some of the hardest time finding this time for this kind of discipline with God. Working or not working, it's still really hard. This last week, Dr. Tim Keller was in the Bay Area teaching and lecturing in different places, and there was a uh, a smaller lunch that I was invited to, and um, Ryan, I don't know if Ryan's here, but Ryan Payton, one of our members, was um, interviewing him, and at the last question he asked Dr. Keller was, um, uh, by the way, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, pastor there for 20-something years, um, New York Times best-selling writer, all this stuff. He's just uh, huge informing the concept that, that even in my own personal life that you can actually plant churches in po- uh, post-Christian cities, like San Francisco. I didn't even think it was a thing when God called me here, but he, he helped a lot to shape that. Anyway, so he asked Tim Keller wh- about his prayer life, and he recently retired from the pastorate, and he asked, "Is your prayer life gotten better now that you're not a pastor? And he said, actually, no, my prayer life hasn't gotten better after, um, after retiring, having more time. Actually, uh, my prayer life grew exponentially after my kids went away to college, and not because he was praying for his kids, but because he, he, had, he had more time. And he said, he gets this question all the time from, from parents of young children. How do I have a prayer life raising s- small children, especially in urban areas? And he goes, the best advice I give them is just try to stay saved. Just try to be a Christian. <laughs> That's what he said to him. He said this, quote, just try to stay saved. And he said, and I'm a Calvinist. And I said that. (laughs) Now, of course, it's supposed to, it was very funny. He goes, but I, he goes, there's some truth to it. It's it's hard, it's hard in that, in those years. Rohiser is asked the same question by a young mother. How do I find interrupted time each day to pray? Raising small kids, to which he responded, raising small children, if it's done with love and generosity, will do for you exactly what private prayer does. Now, he said, I I can't leave that unqualified. That would be dangerous. Let me qualify that. Let me tell you what I mean. So he explained. He said how Carlo Carretto, one of our century's best spiritual writers, spent many years in the Sahara Desert himself praying. And he once confessed that he felt that his mother, who spent nearly 30 years raising children, was much more a contemplative, much more of a mystic than he was, and less selfish. He says, see, certain vocations, such as raising children, offer a perfect setting for the contemplative life. They provide a desert for reflection, a real monastery. A parent who raises small children experiences the very, a very real withdrawal from the world. That existence can feel very monastic. Tasks often remove a parent from the centers of social life and even the centers of important power. Parents can oftentimes feel removed. And then he says, quote, perhaps... More so than even the monk or the minister of the gospel, she, mom or dad, is forced almost against her will to mature. For her years, while she is raising small children, her time is not her own. Her own needs have to be put into second place. And every time she turns around, some hand is reaching out demanding something. Years of this will mature most anyone. See, the, the whole point of private prayer is the maturing of your soul. And what just says, raising kids and giving your life, your life sa- self-sacrificially to do that is the same sort of inner dynamics that happen. I was just speaking with Ruthie Kim this last week, and she was telling me how both her sons, uh, Keelan and Phoenix, are, are off to school now. And she has time that she hadn't had in years to spend time praying. She goes, I just got done with this walk in going to park and praying. And it's just like years I, I, I've been wa- I've been wanting this to happen for years, and I so I say, after like, how's it been? Like I've just been thinking about this. Being a mom, a parent, uh, working. She says it's, al- it's always been an experiment to find time to pray. Always. Some weeks I'm doing really good at it. Some weeks I just feel like again I'm not even saved. Like that. Everything in between is it's, it's an experiment. And but we I think it's a worthy experiment. I think. Doing this, giving ourselves to this is a worthy experiment. See, since prayer and meditation and cultivating intimacy with God has the same inner dynamics as love and therefore means it feels a lot like duty, it should show us the everydayness of mysticism. See, before I tried to become a mystic, I went to work and I did chores and I took my wife on dates and I slept in on Saturdays. And after I became a mystic, I went to work and did chores and took my wife on dates and slept in on Saturdays. See, the mystical life doesn't automatically change you in radical and remarkable ways, but it will over time. I do all the same, same things I do, but with, I think, more awareness of God. I was just telling someone this last week. On Labor Day, I went to, to, uh, I went, I, I went to try to go golfing. So I like golfing. And I go, and I hurt my back like, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 next week, by the way, and I just feel it everywhere. Um... <laughs> And I, and I hurt my back like five weeks ago. So I think, I think I'm good enough to go golfing. Like, I, I think I'm good enough. I think my back's gonna have to go golfing. The very first hole, I throw my back out again. And I have to pick up my ball and like walk off the course. And so I call Ash and she's so sad. Oh my gosh, I'm so sad, I'm so sorry. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking if, if, if you can't, if you have to walk off a golf course, it's pretty bad. <laughs> like a golf course, I mean, I get it. Like you heard yourself playing soccer. Or like something, something intense, but golfing. Like I, I'm like walking. I'm like, hey, I, I hurt myself, guys. <laughs> I gotta go. First hole. First first swing. <laughs> I gotta go. Like, my. and the thing is, is that for me, um, my personality type, I I I I love living without any sort of limits. I love living and enjoying life. I think that's pretty much San Francisco's personality type, by the way. And the second I'm told I can't do something, I I fall into despair. Like, like someone's, like, is there anything worth living for anymore? <laughs> and I walk off the golf course, and I'm driving home, and I'm thinking, what if, what if, what if I, what if I won't be able to golf anymore? And I was, honestly, I was like, okay. And I I, I, yesterday, Ash and I were on the Sabbath walk, and I'm like, I'm thankful that I didn't despair last week, where I typically would have. I'm like, I can't, my back, I, I'm, all, I, you know, all of these things, just like, I can't, and I'm okay with this. The life of a mystic is that you actually live the life the, the way you have always lived it, and the, the result, the change is inward. One writer on Christian mysticism says, on one hand, nothing changes as a result of embracing the mystical life. On the other, everything changes. You do the same chores, perform the same tasks, enjoy the same pleasures, and struggle against the same sins. And yet, you do all of this in light of your disciplined commitment to seek intimacy with God. It is the light that subtly informs who you are regardless of whether you are bored or energized by your spiritual exercises on any given day. And the light of your daily practice is the light by which you can see, if not the face of God, then at least the subtle traces of his presence in your life and in your soul. Brother Lawrence who wrote the small little book that I recommend everyone get practicing the presence of God was a French monk who served in the kitchen of his monastery and he had a prayer he had a hymn and it went like this Lord of all pots and pans and things make me a saint by getting the meals and washing up the plates amen This this sort of thing and he said this came from the practice he said is to is to the it's to stay in the actual presence of God, he says. The, quote, actual presence of God. And he said that happened by habitual, silent, and secret conversation with the, in the soul with God. Like, everything he was doing, he was trying to be in conversation with God. Frank Lombach, who is, a, who is a, uh, a missionary to what is called what was known as the silent billion. Those who could not read or write. He he tried these experiments he actually said in his book again i recommend this book to you the letters of a modern mystic letters by a modern mystic he says you and you and you and i do experience fresh find fresh contact with god sometimes and do carry out his will sometimes one question now will be to put to the test is this can we have that kind of contact with god all the time all the time awake fall asleep in his arms and awaken in his presence. Can we attain that? Can we do his will all the time? Can we think his thoughts all the time? I choose to make the rest of my life an experiment in answering this question. In doing that, he brought literally to literally millions of people. He he, he had degrees at Princeton Union Seminary in Columbia, went around as, a, as someone who lived in communion with God, bringing literacy all over the developing world. The beginning of this series, I started with this question. And I want to end here, this sermon here. The Jesuit theologian Carl Rayner said, The Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist at all. And what he meant by that was that people will either have a dynamic, conscious, and experiential relationship with God, or their faith will be somehow dying and looking for some sort of quick hit of something to try to keep it alive for another season. See, in our secularist consumer culture, we have a story that says the more wealthy, the more enlightened, and the more consumptive you become the less religious you become, the less interested in transcendence you become and so on. But I honestly don't see how that fits into anyone's story. We are all haunted by the transcendent. We're all haunted by the beyond. There's a documentary that Ash and I recently watched called, um, it was about a a gal named Dolores Hart. She was a Hollywood Scarlet. She was living in the Hollywood dream in the 50s and early 60s. She starred beside someone everyone who was someone, including Elvis. And two things happened. She was engaged after a huge offer by a studio for over a million dollars in the late 50s for a woman. That's a huge deal. And then she gets, she gets engaged. And then she goes on a retreat to a Benedictine Abbey, a silent retreat. And there, in this Abbey, in this Benedictine silent retreat, Something in her heart is pricked. A thorn is lodged into her side. So she goes back to Hollywood. She breaks off her engagement and she commits her life to the Abbey with her wedding dress that she bought for her wedding. And she gets married to God. Now, on its own merit, it's just a wonderful account of a woman who has found everything that anyone in this world wants, but is still not satisfied and is haunted by the transcendent. And it's a great peer into the monastic life. I highly recommend this documentary to you. But what's really fascinating about this is that this documentary documentary is on HBO, like Game of Thrones HBO. (laughs) And it's called God is the Bigger Elvis. And what's fascinating about this documentary is that it's not dismissive. It's not cynical. It's not sneering. If anything, it's framed in a mesmerizing awe. It's like a cultural moment where a woman who has all the, the route to all the licentious freedom that the American dream has promised her in Hollywood. She has it all and she gives it all away and becomes a celibate and poor the rest of her life. And the HBO documentary basically portrays this as a beautiful option. The HBO documentary says is basically saying this through its, through its art. This is actually a beautiful option guys. What's going on in our cultural moment and age, that we're already at a place. We've just lived in this moment for about 40 or 50 years in unfettered sexual freedom, unfettered, becoming unfettered digital freedom, where we have exhausted it, seeing the self-destructive powers of it and are hungry for alternatives. And HBO's like, here's one, the monastic life. (laughs) Like, they're saying there has to be other options. This is, this is a gal who had it all in, she was, she is, but she, in the 60s, beautiful, had it all in the very beginning of the sexual revolution, gives it all up. There has to be other options there. And in there, they were talking about other women's stories who, super powerful woman in New York, and had it all in New York and left there to join the Abbey. There has to be other options. And maybe you're here today and you're like, there has to be other options. I've done it. I lived, I'm on my, on my way of living everything I want to live and it's still not satisfying yet. There has to be another option and there is. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you in the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself but only by being joined to the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is ultimate reality. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our hearts are somewhat stirred to respond to you now. I, I really feel this desire to pray for those that, that sex and money and um, job and work and place and traveling and transience, they were all very appealing at one time. They were all very sexy at one time, but they're getting very old now. They're not doing the thing that we thought they would promised. They're not bringing real peace or real joy. I know that we're all of us. Every single soul is haunted by a memory of having union with you in the garden. Every one of us. And so these words are true. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Some of us have hit rock bottom to a place where we needed recovery. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because our disease has shined a light on our, need, our real need for you, our human need for you. Some of us are, are really good at coping. We're really good at not drinking too much, not having too much sex, not making too much money, and still coping, and have not run to the end of ourselves. But still, it's not satisfying. It's not doing the thing. And there is an invitation, God, by you. There is invitation to abide in you, to turn to you, to connect to you. I do think the life of the monastic life is an option for some I think for most of us in this room abiding in you while we abide in San Francisco is what we need to learn so whatever needs to get out of the way for that to happen would you remove that now whatever we need to confess whatever we need to tell you whatever accountability we need around that may that begin to happen now I pray this for the sake of your church, that we would be fruitful, God, and our fruit would remain. In Jesus' name, amen.